Hello, and welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast with David Bridges. My name's Casey Griffiths, and I'm the guest host for this week, and I'm also the author of 50 Relics of the Restoration, along with Mary Jane Woodger. And today we're going to walk through Doctrine and Covenants, section 124. So if you have your scriptures, open up there and we'll start walking through. Now you might have noticed the date that this revelation is received is about two years after the Liberty Jail revelations. This one comes early on in 1841. Uh, the last section of the Doctrine and Covenants before this one, section 123, is the letter lit- written from Liberty Jail while Joseph is there. So this is the biggest gap in the Doctrine and Covenants between sections. Uh, about two years have, have, have passed when this revelation is given, and a lot has happened in those two years. Uh, the saints managed to escape from Missouri in the midst of these horrific persecutions. Joseph Smith and his associates make it out of Liberty Jail. Uh, the Twelve Apostles, led by Brigham Young, go on a mission uh, to Great Britain, and there's been a significant number of doctrinal developments, including the introduction of baptism for the dead when the saints are in Nauvoo. So maybe the first thing you need to understand, section 124, is to just understand a little bit about Nauvoo and its founding. So Joseph Smith is allowed to escape from custody in Missouri when the Missourians realize they don't have anything on him, really, and it's turning into kind of a huge problem for them. National opinion is turning against them because they're persecuting this religious group. So they basically take Joseph Smith and his friends who are in Liberty Jail to the edge of the Missouri frontier. And depending on who's telling the story, tell them that they're allowed to escape. Joseph and his friends escape and they make their way to Quincy, Illinois, where the church is regrouping on the banks of the Mississippi. In fact, one person described Joseph Smith when they saw him there, said, quote, Joseph was dressed in an old pair of boots full of holes, pants torn and tucked inside of his boots. He had not been shaved for some time and wore a blue cloak with collar turned up, a wide brim black hat, rim sopped down. Then he added, Joseph looked pale and haggard. And Joseph, who's exhausted and worn out after being in Liberty Jail for several months, is a metaphor for what's going on with the church. The church is exhausted and tired. Um, they're living as refugees in this little town called Quincy. And to the credit of the citizens of Quincy, they are generous and kind to the saints. They really take them into their homes and... Um, and give them shelter. And to this day, we owe a debt to the citizens of Quincy. In fact, a couple of years ago, the, the Tabernacle Choir went to Quincy and did a benefit concert and gave all the proceeds to the city of Quincy, just as a way of saying thank you for what they did all those years ago. This also might explain why the church has been so uh, has has been so eager to help refugees the last couple of years because at this point in time, we were refugees. Well, the saints also have to find a new place to settle. So they eye a place upriver called Commerce that's basically a swamp. Land is cheap. Uh, Joseph Smith and the other leaders of the church raise the funds to purchase the land in Commerce, and then they rename it to Nauvoo, a Hebrew word that means beautiful. And Nauvoo is going to be headquarters of the church from 1839 to 1846. Now, this revelation deals with some of the, the toll from the serious persecutions the church had been through and the losses they suffered, first in the apostasy that happens in Kirtland, and then in the persecutions that happen in Missouri. 
Um, Nauvoo is a great time for the church, and it's really where Joseph Smith is able to kind of most fully carry out the vision the Lord gives him of what a city should be like. This is where they sort of start from scratch and get a chance to build the entire city, whereas in other locations, like Independence or Kirtland, there was already a city there, and they had to deal with the original settlers. In Nauvoo, they have a blank slate. And Section 124 could rightly be considered kind of the blueprint for the city of Nauvoo. Some of the things that are explained in the Revelation, the the church has already started on. Like, they start building a temple even before this revelation is given. Other things uh, in this temple about uh, the Nauvoo house and how the church is supposed to be a little bit more inclusive are things that they haven't started on that the Lord points out here. So let's start. Um, verses 1 through about 14. First section of the revelation talks about creating a proclamation. The Lord tells Joseph Smith, this is verse 2, your prayers are acceptable before me. And in answer to them, I say unto you that you are now called immediately to make a solemn and proclamation of my gospel of this stake, which I've planted to be a cornerstone of Zion, which shall be polished with the refinement, which is after the similitude of a palace. This proclamation shall be made to all the Kings of the world, to the four corners thereof, to the honorable president elect and the high minded governors of the nation, in which you live and to all the nations of the earth scattered abroad. But let it be written in the spirit of meekness and by the power of the Holy ghost, which shall be given to you at the time of writing the same. Now this proclamation is dealing with a lot of stuff. First of all, you might have heard them mentioning the Honorable uh, President-elect. They mentioned that because after Missouri and before this revelation was received, Joseph Smith actually went to Washington, D.C. He met with um, the President of the United States, who at the time was Martin Van Buren, who somewhat famously said, gentlemen, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. And so Joseph and the leaders of the church are really frustrated at the fact that they've been kicked out of Missouri and lost all their property, and the government hasn't intervened or done anything about it. This is one of the factors that leads to Joseph Smith himself running for president in 1844, because they just aren't satisfied with how politicians have worked to protect their rights. Now, the proclamation mentioned here is begun during Joseph Smith's lifetime, but completed it after his martyrdom. His efforts to write it were hindered by the death of Joseph's assistant, Robert B. Thompson, who was commanded to assist in writing the Revelation. You can see that in verse 12. The proclamation was also delayed by the apostasy of John C. Bennett and William Law, who were commanded to assist with it. That's in verses 16 and 107. Joseph Smith does start the proclamation and begins writing it. In fact, he gets about 22 pages completed before he's martyred in the in the spring of 1844. The proclamation is then completed by the Quorum of the Twelve in 1845 and published to the world. In fact, the finished proclamation was published by Parley P. Pratt on behalf of the Quorum of the Twelve in Liverpool, England, and you can find it pretty easily today. It's just labeled Proclamation of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And among other things, the proclamation announces, quote, that the kingdom of God has come, as has been predicted by ancient prophets and prayed for in all ages, even that kingdom which shall fill the whole earth and shall stand forever, being established in these last days for the restoration of all things spoken by the prophets since the world began, in order to prepare the way for the coming of the Son of Man. Now, let's go into the second part of the Revelation, which starts about verse 15. And this is where we start to see in the Revelation the heavy toll that the persecutions in Missouri uh, took. You can see the Lord addressing Hiram Smith and talking about how great Hiram Smith is. And then if you jump down to verse 19, there's kind of a poignant note where he says, uh, They shall finish the work that I may receive them unto myself, even as I did my servant David Patton who's with me at this time. 
and also my servant Edward Partridge, and also my aged servant Joseph Smith Sr., who sitteth with Abraham at his right hand, and blessed and holy is he, for he is mine. Now, the Revelation mentions three people that are basically casualties of the Missouri persecutions. David Patton, who was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, who's just outright killed in the Battle of Crooked River fighting against the Missourians. Edward Partridge, the first bishop of the church. You remember Edward Partridge is a convert going all the way back to 1830, uh, who serves as the first bishop and just labors and works and gives his entire life to try and help and assist the members of the church in Missouri. Edward Partridge dies practically of exhaustion uh, when they get to uh, Nauvoo. He passes away May 27, 1840. And then there's probably the most personal of these three, Joseph Smith Sr. This is the prophet's father, the first patriarch called in this dispensation. And it must have been comforting for the saints, especially Joseph Smith, to know that his father had been received into exaltation. The Lord says, he sits with Abraham at his right hand, and blessed and holy is he. In fact, uh, Joseph Smith's mother records the moment when Father Smith passed away. Before he dies, like the ancient patriarchs in the Bible, he gathers together all of his sons and gives them one last patriarchal blessing. In fact, Lucy records that Joseph Jr. went to his father and his father gave him his last blessing, which she recorded as follows. He said, Joseph, my son, thou art called to a high and holy calling. Thou art even called to do the work of the Lord. Hold out faithful and you shall be blessed and your children after you. You shall even live to finish your work. She said, at this point, Joseph cried out, weeping, Oh, my father, will I? Yes, said his father, you shall live to lay out the plan of all the work which God has given you to do. This is my dying blessing on your head in the name of Jesus. I also confirm your former blessings upon your head, for it shall be fulfilled. Even so. Amen. So these three great brothers, um, David Patton, Edward Partridge, and Joseph Smith Sr. are all told that they're going to be brought into exaltation, that they're going to be okay. And interestingly contrasted in this verse are several other people who don't stay faithful. You've got John C. Bennett, who helps them set up the city of Nauvoo, but then eventually turns traitor. Uh, he's excommunicated for committing adultery and then tries to discredit Joseph Smith. He's one of the factors that leads to Joseph Smith's death. It's also Lyman White and George Miller, who both stay faithful. Lyman White's an apostle. George Miller takes over as one of the bishops of the church. Uh, Lyman White leads a group of saints to Texas and sets up his own colony there that flourishes for a brief time and then eventually kind of dissolves. George Miller follows Lyman White and then eventually dies on the route west. Now, the meaty parts of the Revelation start around verse 22. This is where the Lord starts to lay out the structure of the city of Nauvoo, and in so doing, kind of gives the saints a pattern for all the cities that they'll build. And in verses 22 down to about verse 28, he talks about building a house, but surprisingly, the house is not the temple. It's a different kind of house, and it might explain a little bit about why and, and how we build temples right now. Uh, he says this, um, verse 22, let my servant George, my servant Lyman, that's George Miller, Lyman White, and my servant John Snyder and others build a house under my name, such as one my servant Joseph shall show them under the place which he shall show them also. Now that sounds like a temple because at this point, the Lord saying build a house is always talking about building a temple. Instead, verse 23, the Lord says, this shall be a house for boarding. 
a house that strangers may come from afar to lodge therein. Let it be a good house, worthy of all acceptation, that the weary traveler may find health and safety while he shall contemplate the word of the Lord and the cornerstone I have appointed for Zion. This house shall be a healthful habitation, if it be built unto my name, and if the governor which shall be appointed unto it shall not suffer any pollution to come upon it, it shall be holy, or the Lord your God will not dwell within. Now, interestingly, like we mentioned, this house is not the temple. This house comes to be known as the Nauvoo house. And what it is basically is a structure for boarding people, for allowing visitors to come to Nauvoo and have a nice place to stay. Later on in the Revelation, the Lord's going to call it a, a place where people can ponder the glories of Zion. So one of the problems that the saints are wondering about at this time as to why they were so persecuted in Missouri and other places was maybe we were too exclusive, like maybe we were too clannish, maybe we weren't open enough to other people. And so the Nauvoo house is this inclusive structure. It's designed to allow anybody to come to Nauvoo and kind of figure out what the saints teach and what they believe and see that they're good, decent people. Um, you could say this is like a, a really nice hotel built by the temple or uh, a visitor center. You'll note most of the time when we build the temple now, we also build a visitor center nearby, especially if the temple's in a prominent place or near church headquarters. And a allow the visitor center to sort of explain what we believe to people so that they don't see us as peculiar or strange. See, the temple has always been set apart as kind of an exclusive structure. Um, Exclusive because a person has to qualify to be worthy to go inside the temple. Uh, This is an inclusive structure. This is a place where anybody can come and be welcomed in. Um, This is maybe the beginning of every chapel in the church saying, visitors, welcome. And just letting people know, hey, whether or not you're a member of our church, we we want you to know about us. We, we want to know about you. We want you to understand and know what we believe. And the saints, while they're in Nauvoo, do devote a, a significant amount of effort to building this hotel, the Nauvoo House. They pick a spot right by the Mississippi River, and they start to build what's a pretty nice-looking building. In fact, it's never completed, but we do have the architectural designs, and it would have been several stories high, extremely nice uh, by the conditions of the time and the fact that they're living on the frontier. And it gets quite a bit of emphasis uh, from the leaders of the church. For instance, uh, Joseph Smith in 1843 at a conference of the church says, it is important that this conference give importance to the Nauvoo House as a prejudice exists against the Nauvoo House in favor of the Lord's House. Uh, Brigham Young says the Nauvoo House is necessary for the salvation of the church. And they do all that they can to, to work on it, but understandably, uh, they do focus on the temple. So the Nauvoo House is never completed, though they do complete the temple. In fact, people that come to Nauvoo, one of them in 1845, notes that the Nauvoo House is not completed. In fact, they say the building of the Nauvoo House is wholly abandoned, its bare walls and large piles of bricks exposed to the weather, presenting a striking contrast to the view, which would be presented if the measures of the martyr prophet were to be carried out as he designed. So understandably, after Joseph Smith's death, the saints switch into survival mode, and that means getting the temple done so that they can receive their ordinances in the house of the Lord. The Nauvoo house, which is intended for visitors, uh, understandably falls by the wayside. But later on, Emma Smith, who stays behind in Nauvoo, and her second husband, Louis Bitterman, do complete the Nauvoo house, um, only part of it. They build a structure on the on the southwest corner of what the Nauvoo house is supposed to be. It's much, much smaller 
uh, than what they intended for the Nauvoo house. They call it the Riverside Mansion, and it does act as a boarding house. Um, the building is even there today. It's operated as a boarding house still by Community of Christ, a breakoff church that owns uh, that part of it. Now, from the Nauvoo house, this inclusive structure, this kind of visitor center, the revelation shifts in verse 29 to talk about the house of the Lord. And here the Lord's addressing a development that's already happened in between the sections, which is that Joseph Smith introduced the doctrine of baptisms for the dead. Joseph Smith starts teaching about baptisms for the dead before this revelation is given, and the saints are so enthusiastic, they start practicing baptisms for the dead in the nearby Mississippi River. The Lord, in order to uh, address this event that's happening, gives them a command here that still has impact on the church today. Verse 29, for a baptismal font there is not upon the earth that they, my saints, may be baptized for those who are dead. Then he teaches, this ordinance belongeth to my house and cannot be accepted to me only in the days of your poverty, wherein you're not able to build a house unto me. But I command you, all you saints, to build a house unto me, and I grant unto you a sufficient time to build a house unto me, and during this time your baptism shall be acceptable unto me. So basically, the saints are so enthusiastic, they start doing baptisms in the Mississippi River, but the Lord says, hey, this ordinance is supposed to happen within the temple. So finish the temple and build a baptismal font, and that allows them to do a couple of things like keep more accurate records of how the baptisms are are, are kept and taken. But the Lord is going to address this uh, when Joseph Smith writes letters in section 127 and section 128. But the center of the city, just like all the other cities the saints have built in Kirtland and Independence and Far West and even Adam on Diamond, is going to be a temple. The temple in Nauvoo is going to be bigger and more beautiful, more ornate and more grand than any temple that the saints have built previously. And the saints are so enthusiastic that they start with the baptismal font and work their way up. In fact, one of the things that they do is start work on the font, complete the basement and even cover it over so that they can start doing baptisms for the dead while the temple is still under construction. And this development of baptisms for the dead is another important part of Nauvoo that needs to be understood. You see, when you come to Nauvoo today, you see kind of a nice little town uh, that is on a bluff um, down below where the saints mostly built their homes are these flats that are right by the Mississippi River. When the saints arrive there, these flats are mostly swamp. And living in a swamp in the 1840s is a dicey proposition. A lot of the saints, when they first get there, die um, from malaria and from other diseases that are caused by the mosquito populations in the swamp. In fact, until the saints drain the swamp and get everything under control, it's it's scary in Nauvoo. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of people that are dying. And because of this, the saints fixate their thoughts on death and what it means. It's in the middle of these sorrows that Joseph Smith introduces the doctrine of baptism for the dead. In fact, uh, a while before this revelation was received, August 15th, 1840, Joseph Smith first preaches at a funeral given for um, a person that's passed away baptism for the dead. Simon Baker, who's there, records that Joseph Smith got up and read most of 1 Corinthians 15. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul mentions baptism for the dead. Joseph Smith explains that the Apostle was talking to a people who understood baptisms for the dead, for it was practice among them. He then told the crowd that people could now act for their friends who had departed this life and that the plan of salvation was calculated to save all who were willing to obey the commandments 
or requirements of God. So the saints are so enthusiastic about this, they start to practice baptisms immediately. In fact, first recorded baptism for the deceased we can find is a woman named Jane Nyman, who's baptized on behalf of her son with Vienna Jacques. You remember her from section 90 of the Doctrine and Covenants acting as witness. So our recent return to having women serve as witnesses for baptisms and proxy baptisms is actually one of the things that they do in Nauvoo. And Joseph Smith starts to teach and emphasize and help the saints understand the importance of this ordinance for the salvation of the dead. Again, he's going to talk more about this in section 127 and 128, which are coming up next week. But in a discourse Joseph Smith gives in 1843, he says, It was the design of the councils of heaven before the world was that the principles and laws of the priesthood were predicated upon the gathering of people in every age of the world. Jesus did everything possible to gather the people, and they would not be gathered, and he therefore poured out curses upon them. Ordinances instituted in the heavens before the foundation of the world and the priesthood for the salvation of men are not to be altered or changed and all must be saved on the same principles. He said, it's for the same purpose that God gathers his people in the last days to build unto the Lord a house to prepare them for the ordinances of endowments, washings, and anointings, etc. One of the ordinances of the house of the Lord is baptism for the dead. God decreed before the foundation of the world that this ordinance should be administered in a font prepared for that purpose in the house of the Lord. Now, verses 36 through 44 continue on this theme where the Lord is talking about how there's some ordinances that are special, and because they're special, they need to be practiced within a temple. Up to this point, we've only been able to finish the Kirtland Temple, though the saints start construction on temples in Independence, that's the city of Zion, and in Far West, and in Adam on Diamond. In Nauvoo, they're going to complete their second temple, and this could rightly be considered the first full temple that has everything we're used to today, including baptisms, endowments, and sealings. Now, the first endowments and sealings for the dead that we can find are practiced in the St. George Temple, but Nauvoo is basically where the template is laid down. And you can see there where the Lord, verse 36, is saying, it's ordained that in Zion and in her stakes and in Jerusalem, those places which I've appointed for refuge shall be places for your baptisms for the dead. And again, verily I say unto you, how shall your washings be acceptable unto me, except you perform them in a house that was built unto my name. So he's pointing out here that there's going to be multiple temples. The saints aren't going to build just one temple, but then verse 36, places, which were appointed for refuge for baptism for the dead. Then he starts to list off the ordinances. Verse 39, verily I say unto you, your anointings and your washings, your baptisms for the dead, your solemn assemblies, your memorials for your sacrifices by the sons of Levi, and for your oracles in your most high places wherein you receive conversations, statutes, and judgments for the beginning of the revelations and the foundations of Zion and for the glory, honor, and endowment of all her municipals are ordained by the ordinance of my holy house, which my people are always commanded to build unto my holy name. And verily I say unto you, let this house be built unto my name that I may reveal ordinances there unto my people. So he lists off the ordinances that the saints already know, including baptisms for the dead and the washings and anointings, which take place in the temple earlier in Kirtland. But he also says, if you'll finish this house, I'm going to reveal more ordinances. Verse 41, I deem to reveal unto my church things which have been kept hid from before the foundation of the world, things that pertain to the dispensation of the fullness of times. Now, this is probably a reference to the endowment ordinance, which is going to be received fully in Nauvoo. Now, I should be clear that earlier 
revelations going all the way back to section 38 of the Doctrine and Covenants mention an endowment of power that will be given to the saints. And that endowment manifests itself in a number of different ways. Even the earlier ordinances, which today are closer to the washings and anointings that we perform in temple, were referred to as the endowment. But this revelation says there's going to be other ordinances given, and Joseph Smith does give those during the Nauvoo period. So another important thing that happens in Nauvoo that is commanded here is that the full ordinances are given. For instance, on May 1st, 1842, that's about a year after this revelation is given, Joseph Smith preaches on certain keys. His journal records, I preached in the grove on the keys of kingdom, keys of the kingdom and charity, etc. The keys are certain signs and words by which false spirits and personages may be detected from true, which cannot be revealed to the elders until the temple is completed. Then he writes, the rich can only get them in the temple. The poor can get them on the mountaintop, as did Moses. So knowing that the saints are poor and they're doing everything they can to build the temple, but Joseph knows that his time on earth is coming to a close. He he decides to go ahead and give the instructions for the endowment ordinances before the temple's finished. In fact, the first endowments happen in Joseph Smith's red brick store in Nauvoo, which has a big meeting space above it. This is where the Relief Society is organized. This is also where the first endowments are carried out. Willard Richards, who's one of Joseph Smith's close friends, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, says that a few days after that discourse was given on May 4th, 1842, Joseph Smith instructed those in the pre- those present in the principles and order of the priesthood, attending to washings, anointings, endowments, and the communication of keys pertaining to the Aaronic priesthood, and so on to the highest order of the Melchizedek priesthood, setting forth the order pertaining to the Ancient of Days, and all those plans and principles by which anyone is enabled to secure the fullness of those blessings which have been prepared by the Church of the Firstborn, to come up and abide in the presence of Elohim in the eternal worlds. In this council was instituted the ancient order of things for the first time in the last days. Now, according to Willard Richards, Joseph Smith doesn't intend for these ordinances to just be given to a select few, though he does introduce them to a small group of people informally known as the Quorum of the Anointed in Nauvoo. Willard Richards said that Joseph Smith said there was nothing made known to these men but what will be made known to all the saints of the last days as soon as they're prepared to receive and a proper place is prepared to communicate to them, even to the weakest of the saints. Therefore, let the saints be diligent in building the temple and all houses which have been or shall hereafter be commanded of God to build. So this ordinance which he gives them, he gives this small group with the idea that when the temple is completed, they'll give them to everybody. And that's really what happens. After Joseph Smith is killed, Brigham Young and the 12 apostles who take over leadership of the church basically get everybody that they can into the Nauvoo temple and give them all of the ordinances. So they receive all the ordinances, and then everybody kind of heads into the West, and it's almost 30 years before another temple is built. That's in St. George, then temples in Logan, Manti, finally Salt Lake, the so-called Pioneer Temples. They also do, I should mention, erect an endowment house on Temple Square so they can perform endowments all along the way. And they also perform the endowments in some unique places, like the first endowments performed in Utah were performed on Ensign Peak. Uh, Because like Joseph said, if you can't have a temple, then you can get them on a mountaintop. So the saints uh, literally carry that out. 
Now, um, as the revelation continues, the Lord gives a couple stern warnings about getting the house finished. Um, for instance, verse 45, if my people will hearken unto my voice and the voice of my servants whom I've appointed to lead my people, behold, verily I say unto you, they shall not be moved out of their place. But if they will not hearken to my voice, nor unto the voice of the men whom I've appointed, they shall not be blessed because they pollute my holy grounds, my holy ordinances and charters and my holy words to give unto them. Now, this could be a reference to the fact that the saints keep trying to um, build temples, but they really, really uh, struggle, sometimes because of their own follies, uh, sometimes because of external persecutions, like in Missouri. You might note that uh, the Lord harkens back to commandments that he's given earlier to build other temples. Verse 51, I have accepted the offerings of those whom I commanded to build up a city and house in my name in Jackson County, Missouri. That's the city of Zion. The Lord says, we're going to eventually build these temples. And he might not just be making reference to um, the temple in Zion in Independence, but also the temples that they have sites dedicated for in far west Missouri, where there's still not a temple, and in Adam on Diamond, where there's also still not a temple. The Lord basically tells them in these verses, look, I know that you tried. I know that you had some problems that were your own problems, and also a lot of problems that weren't necessarily your fault. And so he's excusing the saints at this time from having to build those temples, though we will eventually have to build them. Section 101 says Zion has not been moved out of her place. Therefore, someday and somehow we're going to have to build the temple in Jackson County, and I believe we're going to have to get around to building a temple in Far West and a temple in Adam on Diamond, but I don't know how or when we, we get there specifically. Now, we have built a temple in Kansas City, which is just about 50 minutes to the north of the temple lot. And that's significant. But the Lord basically here is saying, look, I know that you tried and you're going to get blessings for trying. He tells the saints, I will make this an example unto you concerning all those who've been commanded to do a work and have been hindered by the hands of their enemies and by oppression. For I, the Lord your God, will save all those your brethren who've been pure in heart and have been slain in the land of Missouri. Now, this reminded me of a, a statement Elder Dale Renland made in General Conference, where basically the Lord says you get points for trying. Um, Elder Renland in a 2015 conference address quoted Nelson Mandela, who said, I'm no saint unless you think a saint is a sinner who keeps on trying. And then Elder Renland said, my invitation to all of us is to evaluate our lives, repent, and keep on trying. If we don't try, we're just Latter-day sinners. If we don't persevere, we're Latter-day quitters. If we don't allow others to try, we're just Latter-day hypocrites. If we try, persevere, and help others to do the same, we are true Latter-day saints. As we change, we will find that God indeed cares a lot more about who we are and about who we are becoming than who we once were. So it's kind of nice to know that the saints have had some major failures and setbacks, and the Lord here does acknowledge, hey, I know that you're trying. Keep trying. They keep trying, and they eventually do complete the temple in Nauvoo, and then they go on to complete temples in Utah. And today we're looking at over 200 temples. If you count all the temples that have been announced or under construction, uh, it's, it's a great example of that Book of Mormon teaching that out of small and simple things, great things come. The saints in Nauvoo would be over the moon to see what the saints have accomplished. But remember, it's taken us nearly 200 years to get here, and it took a lot of perseverance, and the Lord appreciates us trying. Now, in verses 56 down to about verse 83, there is a long long discussion about the Nauvoo house again. So the Lord returns to the Nauvoo house 
And there he gives them a little bit more of a description. He says, it's a boarding house, verse 56. And then he says, verse 60, the name of the house shall be called the Nauvoo house. Let it be a delightful habitation for man and a resting place for the weary traveler that he may contemplate the glory of Zion and the glory of this, the cornerstone thereof. Then a lot of these verses deal with the Lord basically asking people like, Isaac Galland and George Miller, John Snyder, Peter Haas, and so on to uh, help purchase stock, help people raise money so that the Nauvoo house can be built. Um, the Nauvoo house, like they said, like I said earlier, did have a pretty nice design that we're familiar with, though they aren't quite able to, to finish it. But you can see in this idea of a Nauvoo house, a place where a weary traveler can come, and the Nauvoo Temple, kind of the basic outline that we use later on when we build church headquarters in Salt Lake. In Salt Lake, there are um, places where a weary traveler can stay. There's hotels. Um, there's also places where they can contemplate Zion, visitor centers. You could even argue that things like the um, the the City Creek Center, which the church helped finance and build, were there to make the area around church headquarters hospitable and make it a place where people could come and uh, participate, um, see what the saints have done, see the city that they've built, and see that it's a good, industrious place where a lot of good things happen, and have that kind of lead them to contemplate the glories of Zion. Now, skipping down a little bit further, if you get to verse 84, there's a mention of a man named Alman Babbitt. The Lord counsels him and says, he setteth up a golden calf. This is verse 84 for the worship of my people. Let no man go from this place. Come here who has come here as saying to keep my commandments. If they live here, let them live unto me. Let them die unto me for they shall rest from all their labors here and continue their works. Alman Babbitt is kind of an interesting character in church history. Um, the Lord talks about sending, um, agents earlier to build up Kirtland, but also telling them that at the time Kirtland had a scourge placed on it. This is verse 83 in the Revelation. Um, Oliver Granger, an agent of the church, was sent to Kirtland and uh, informed Joseph Smith of the strange behavior of an elder. This is from Oliver Granger, Alman Babbitt. Said, said that he was surprised that Alman Babbitt seemed to be destroying the confidence of the brethren and the people that were left behind in Kirtland. So the Lord here rebukes Alman Babbitt. Alman Babbitt does repent, eventually joins the church, comes back to the church in Nauvoo, was left behind as an agent in Nauvoo, helped escape care of Emma Smith and becomes an important leader of the saints. Unfortunately, he's killed while crossing the plains in 1856 in a, an attack by Native Americans. Now, moving down, a couple other people are addressed here, like William Law. That's in verse 87. The Lord says, let my servant William put his trust in me and cease to fear concerning his family because of the sickness of the land. If he love me, keep my commandments and the sickness of the land shall redound to your glory. I mean, this revelation covers a lot of people like um, William Law and Hiram Smith, who are going to turn out to be kind of heroes and villains in the saga of Nauvoo. William Law is called in this revelation to be a counselor in the first presidency. And by all accounts, William Law is a very, very gifted leader. However, William Law also is one of the people chiefly responsible for Joseph Smith's death. William Law does not like the teaching of plural marriage and the plurality of gods. He doesn't like that Joseph Smith is teaching that people can become like God 
or that um, sealings can happen for eternity, including plural sealings. And so he's one of the people probably most responsible for Joseph Smith's death. That's why it's interesting that the Lord gives him some some severe warnings here. Verse 89, if he will do my will, let him henceforth hearken to the counsel of my servant Joseph with his interest, support the cause of the poor and publish the new translation of the Holy Word. If he do this, I will bless him with a multiplicity of blessings and he shall not be forsaken, nor shall his seed be found begging bread. Now, unfortunately, William Law doesn't heed these commandments. He publishes the Nauvoo Expositor, this anti-Mormon newspaper in Nauvoo, which eventually leads to the death of Joseph Smith. Now, contrast what the Lord says to William Law with verses 91 through 96, which are given to Hiram Smith. Hiram Smith is the prophet's older brother, and at this point in time, um, they've lost their father. And so there's a need for a new church patriarch, and uh, Hiram's already serving in the first presidency. The Lord tells uh, Hiram, this is verse 91, let my servant William be appointed, ordained, and anointed as a counselor to my servant Joseph in the room of my servant Hiram, that my servant Hiram may take the office of priesthood and patriarch, which was appointed unto him by his father, and by blessing also by right, that from henceforth he shall hold the keys of the patriarchal blessings upon the heads of all my people. Whosoever he blesses shall be blessed, and whosoever he curses shall be cursed, and whatsoever he shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever he shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the beginning of uh, Hiram Smith being appointed as patriarch to the church. And some of the older listeners out there will remember that there used to be alongside the first presidency in the twelve an appointed patriarch of the church. This continued until uh, the late 1970s, 1979, when the first presidency honorably released Elder Eldred G. Smith, who was also a descendant of Hiram Smith, as serving as patriarch. At the time, the leaders of the church explained basically that since there was a stake patriarch in every stake and the church was a little more well more well organized than it was in Nauvoo, there wasn't a need for a, a patriarch to the church. I think they also might have been concerned a little bit with the fact that the patriarchal office was passed from for fa- from father to son. It was hereditary. And so at that point, Eldred G. Smith was released. Eldred G. Smith is allowed to continue uh, to give patriarchal blessings until he passed away in 2013. But that's not the only calling that Hiram receives here. He's not just called as the patriarch of the church. If you go to verse 94, Hiram receives a second calling as well. It says, whosoever he blesses shall be blessed, and whosoever he curses shall be cursed. And then in verse 94, from this time forth, I appoint unto him that he may be a prophet and a seer and a revelator unto the church, as well as my servant Joseph, that he may act in concert also with my servant Joseph, that he may receive counsel from my servant Joseph, who shall show unto him the keys, whereby he may ask and receive and be crowned with the same blessing, glory and honor, and gifts of the priesthood that were once put upon him, who was my servant Oliver Cowdery. Now, this is the reestablishment of a pattern that exists early on in the church, too, that Joseph Joseph Smith is present in the church. That is true. But there's always two elders, starting with the organization of the church in section 20. Joseph Smith is appointed as the first elder. Hiram Smith, or Oliver Cowdery in section 20 is appointed as the second elder. And if you're listing the key events of priesthood restoration, usually the people that are there are Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. 
when the Aaronic priesthood is restored, Joseph Smith and Oliver, when the Melchizedek priesthood is restored, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, when the keys are given in the Kirtland Temple by Moses, Elias, and Elijah, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are the two people that are there. Well, Oliver Cowdery is excommunicated from the church in 1838. He's going to come back eventually. But in 1841, in this revelation, the Lord is basically saying, I need Hiram to do what Oliver Cowdery did. And that is essentially act as assistant president of the church or almost a sort of co-president of the church. So there's no doubt that Joseph Smith is, is still the leader. Every revelation received after this is received by Joseph Smith. But there needed to be a second witness that holds the keys alongside Joseph Smith. And that shifts from Oliver Cowdery to Hiram Smith here. Um, Hiram is appointed to basically take Oliver's place and act as a co-testator of the restoration. And you might note a couple of years later, Joseph and Hiram Smith are the ones that are martyred in Carthage jail to seal their testament with their blood. In fact, Joseph Fielding Smith, the president of the church, who was a descendant of Hiram Smith, said that he was firmly of the belief that if Oliver Cowdery had stayed faithful, it would have been Oliver Cowdery and not Hiram Smith, who went to Carthage jail with Joseph Smith. He said, I am firmly of the opinion that had Oliver Cowdery remained true to his covenants and obligations as a witness with Joseph Smith and retained his authority in place, he, not Hiram Smith, would have gone with Joseph as a prisoner and to martyrdom at Carthage. So they're setting us up for some key events, and that includes the martyrdom that happens here. Prior Up to this point, Hiram has been a member of the First Presidency. Now he's appointed basically as second elder of the church. And one of the reasons why he's moved up is is captured in the next few verses. So verse 97 talks about William Law, a blessing to him, who's going to be counsel in the first presidency. And verse 103, Sidney Rigdon is also upheld as a counselor in the first presidency. But the Lord says, let him arise. This is verse 103. And come and stand in the office of calling and humble themselves before me. And if he will offer unto me an acceptable offering and acknowledgments and remain with my people, but I, behold, I, the Lord your God, will heal him that he shall be healed and shall lift up his voice again upon the mountains and he shall be a spokesman before my face. Uh, Sidney Rigdon at this point is really struggling and the Lord telling him to arise and stand in his office might be because he's having a hard time. Um, Liberty jail was hard on everybody, but especially on Sidney Rigdon. Rigdon. Sidney Rigdon basically is a broken man after Liberty Jail. And he gets out about two months earlier than Joseph and the other uh, people that are kept in Liberty Jail. But he just really, really struggles. Uh, Sidney's son later says, Sidney Rigdon, being of a bilious temperament, was sick most of the time while he remained in Nauvoo. For weeks at a time, he would not be able to leave his bed. And Sidney himself writes a letter to a friend saying, my health is very bad. And it's only at intervals that I'm able to write. It is known throughout the country generally that I'm unable to get five miles from my house, let alone discuss a subject of importance with any person. It's also a fact that my attendant physician has forbidden my using any exertions, either mental or physical, except very moderate exercise as it will endanger my life. So another key development that happens in Nauvoo is up to this point, Joseph Smith has kind of been the revelator and Sidney Rigdon has been the spokesman of the church. Sidney's health failing while they're in Nauvoo sort of leads Joseph Smith to take on a 
more prominent role. And you might notice that the number of public discourses Joseph Smith gives where he explains the scriptures, where he uh, teaches doctrinal concepts, just skyrockets when they get to Nauvoo. I mean, there's so much more material. And from about 1839 to 1844, there are just a number of discourses, some of them the most important ones given in this dispensation, where Joseph Smith explains key concepts. Now, some of these discourses are going to actually wind up in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, things like section uh, 129 to 131 are discourses that Joseph Smith gives. And this does sort of show that Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon are are growing apart a little bit. Joseph's taking on a more prominent role. Now, they, they go back and forth and upwards and down. Um, in 1843, Joseph Smith accuses Sidney Rigdon of working with apostates who are trying to overthrow the church, for instance. In 1844, Joseph Smith makes Sidney Rigdon his vice presidential candidate. So he's trying to forgive Sidney and and help him kind of fill his role in the church. Sidney's really gifted, but there are signs here uh, that the Lord is warning uh, Sidney Rigdon that he needs to he needs to fulfill his role and be cautious um, with what he does. Now, continuing on, uh, verses 111 down to verse uh, 122 or a little bit more about the Nauvoo house. The Lord says, specifically speaking here, that he doesn't want them to to draw a line between uh, physical things and spiritual things. He, he talks about them doing physical things. Um, verse 113, he shall, shall prove himself faithful over all things shall be entrusted unto his care, and even a few things shall be made a ruler over many. The Lord um, says to them that building the Nauvoo house, which could be seen as kind of a secular venture, like we said, it's designed for travelers, is a spiritual venture. And just to illustrate that too, when they do start construction on the Nauvoo house, Joseph Smith, as if to illustrate how important the Nauvoo is, the Nauvoo house is, actually takes the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, puts it in the cornerstone. Um, it's kept there with the intent to preserve it from from deterioration. Unfortunately, the Nauvoo House is right next to the Mississippi River, and water seeps into the cornerstone, and a lot of the manuscript is destroyed. Um, Joseph Smith um, unfortunately doesn't know this, but when Louis Bitterman, uh, Emma Smith's second husband, goes to finish construction on the Nauvoo House, or at least turn it into a place he can use as a hotel, he does open the cornerstone and pulls out the manuscript. And unfortunately, he starts giving away parts of the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon as souvenirs to people that come and stay in his hotel, which he calls the the Riverside Mansion. Now, the church has found as many of this um, giveaways as they can. Today, only about 28% of the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon exists. Fortunately, the printer's manuscript, which was preserved by the Whitmer family, is complete, and we do get access to that back in 2017. Now, at the end, the Lord kind of does a roundup where in verses uh, 123 to around verse... Um, 145, he just basically winds up the revelation and gives a blessing to everybody. And there's an acknowledgement here of the people in the 12th. Um, at this time, and this is the last thing I'll mention, the 12 are on a mission. They go on a mission that they're commanded to go on in section 118 of the Doctrine and Covenants to Great Britain. And the Lord gives them a blessing here. He mentions verse 27, my servant Brigham Young shall be a president over the 12 traveling council. And the 12 hold the keys to open up the authority of my kingdom upon the four corners of the earth. And after that, to send word to every creature. Then he mentions the name of the 12. They are Heber C. Kimball, Parley P. Pratt, Orson Pratt. 
Pratt, Orson Hyde, William Smith, John Taylor, Johnny Page, Wilford Woodruff, Willard Richards, and George A. Smith. Then he mentions David Patton. He was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve before Brigham Young. Have I taken unto myself? Behold his priesthood, no man taketh from him. But verily I say unto you, another shall be appointed unto the same high calling. That other is Brigham Young who's eventually going to become president of the church in the wake of Joseph Smith's death. Now, again, this is a big section, one of the biggest sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, and there is a lot to cover. But let's just kind of review really quickly the highlights. The Lord is laying down the, the, the city of Nauvoo, his vision of it. It's going to include places that are for everybody, like the Nauvoo house, where any person can come and just stay with the saints and be taken care of by them and see their goodness. It's going to include structures that are exclusive for worship, like the Nauvoo temple, where they're going to do these sacred ordinances things like washings and anointings and baptisms for the dead, which they've already received, and ordinances which they've yet to receive, like the endowment ordinance and sealings. There are just a number of people listed in section 124 that are going to go on to become heroes and villains in the next few years of the saga. You have people like William Law, who's going to be responsible for Joseph Smith's death. People like Hiram Smith, who give his life Uh, for the witness of the gospel. And then people like Brigham Young and the Twelve, who are going to pick up the mantle of prophetic leadership and lead the church to the West. So section uh, 124 might seem like it's covering a lot, and it does cover a lot, but basically what it's doing is setting up the foundation of the city of Nauvoo. And Nauvoo is the pattern we're going to use to build Salt Lake and build the settlements in the West and carry out the great work that the church still carries on of being uh, willing to preach the gospel, do ordinances for the dead, and help carry out the work of salvation in all ways. In the most recent General Conference, you can see reflected some of the things that the Lord teaches here, whether that's ordinances that we do in the temple, whether that's gathering Israel so that we can have as many people as possible to carry out the great work for the dead, or the work of salvation among the living and the dead, which temple work assists with as well. In all these things, the Lord's laying the foundation that almost 200 years later, we can see coming to full fruition. It's such a pleasure. Um, as I drive to work, I drive from Saratoga Springs, Utah every day down to BYU and to see down the road from me, the Saratoga Springs temple being built. And then to get onto the freeway and see the Tipanogos temple. And then when I get to UVU, see the Orem temple. And then when I get to BYU, see the Provo temple up on the hill in the Provo city center temple and see how all these revelations, all these doctrines, the doctrine that the Lord has taught the saints have blossomed and grown into the work of salvation that now isn't just being carried out by a couple thousand people on the banks of the Mississippi River, but is being carried out by millions of people in dozens of countries around the world. I'm just so grateful for these revelations and hope that we can read them, find application to our lives and see why the church does what it does and why things like temples, visitor centers, missionary work, and the gathering of Israel are so important to all of us. And I leave that testimony with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So that's our study for this week. I hope that you had a good experience. If you'd like to know a little bit more about this, um, there's a couple great resources out there that Cedar Fort has prepared. Also, a few resources on a site I work on called Doctrine and Covenants Central, where you can find some of the commentary and quotes that I use today. I hope that you have a great week. I hope that you have a great time studying Section 124, and I will see you again soon. Hi, I'm Valerie Loveless, and I'm just an everyday Latter-day Saint. I go to work, I have a family, 
try to keep the commandments and get my scripture study in. I have a thirst for more gospel knowledge, but not always the time. If you're like me, then join me on my podcast, Everyday Saints. I'm going to take us into the topics that matter to you, pull them apart, listen to the experts and the authors, and keep you up to speed on what it is that Everyday Saints are talking about, reading, and listening to. Just search your podcast app for Everyday Saints and the Angel Moroni thumbnail.